Blog Talk Radio. Hey there, and thanks for listening to the Family Recovery Projects podcast. Join us every week to hear about our mission, why we do what we do, and how we can help your family navigate through the turbulence of getting treatment for a loved one. Stay tuned. Hello. Welcome to our first podcast of 2016. Frank, are you there with us? Yes, I am, Jackie. <laughs> so this, I am Jacqueline Sazzi, and I am one of the associate directors here at the Family Recovery Project, and I am on the line with Frank Slaya, who is the brains behind the Family Recovery Project. And we are going to do part two of our discussion that we started last week on suspicion and confirmation. Um, we we got into a little bit of what it's like at first and we left off talking about the different phases of suspicion and what happens when you do um how hard it is to really look around and find somewhere where you feel like you can talk to somebody we talked about how there's not just this readily available information out there i mean i guess i guess people you know Back in the day, we didn't have Google, so I think today people probably have a lot more options to to ask questions about those kind of things privately because it's not, you know, we talked about how this is not something you want to make public in your uh, knitting circles or book clubs or the places that you would normally go to, you know, just talk about things with people and that that's really what we we would like to pro- be able to provide for people because it is such a, it's just a scary, scary place for parents to be. And it's very confusing. And all of a sudden, I think a lot of parents feel like they don't know their kids anymore. And all the things they thought were true about their family may not be. And I think a lot of parents question themselves and they think, you know, they try to find the one thing they did wrong at some point. And, and I think a lot of that can really cloud judgment and the ability to make good decisions about where to go next. So, so that's where we left off. And I think this week we wanted to talk a little bit more about, seems like we want to talk a little bit more about confirmation. Wouldn't you say, Frank? Yeah, I think that's kind of where we left it hanging when we uh, were last on two weeks ago. We're, you know, we're talking about how suspicion is basically an emotion that is really difficult for anybody to deal with, and not only in this particular circumstance, but just uh, in life in general. You know, thinking that something is possible mm-hmm. or that it might be true. Um, the confirmation part of it is, it is true and it is correct. And once we get to that point, then you know, our first steps as, as parents and loved ones is trying to figure out where, as you were just talking about, what's that first step? Um, mm-hmm. There are different kinds of steps for different people depending upon what kind of support group they have. Um, but we're just moving out of a position of suspicion where we were, you know, kind of distrustful. Um, there was a lot of uncertainty in our lives. We were doubting everything. We are worried. Um, you know, so it 
now moves to kind of an action action stage now that we know that things have have actually happened in the way that we thought they were. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so yeah, you're, yeah, that's where we're kind of picking up our conversation today is how do how do you build that support group? Who do you who do you go to? Who do you trust? Mm-hmm. So, so <clears throat> what would you? I mean, I think we have. You know, we definitely have two sides to this. One is what we would like to do with the Family Recovery Project, right, which is we would like to be a place people can come when they're in that place and when they are scared and confused. And we will have resources available for them to to help them make those decisions and to be there for them as they're going through that process. And then I think the other side is really hearing some of your experience as a parent and what you went through and what you feel like you did right, what you feel like you did wrong, you know, where, what were some of the things that you were hearing and, and how did you handle those things? And then of course, I, I also have the perspective of being on the treatment side. Yeah, and I, and I think that between the two, it's quite the family recovery project in its essence and its mission is, is important to have that safety net for people mm-hmm. um, because we, we have heard it on both sides. And we were talking mm-hmm. earlier about how difficult it is for a parent or loved one uh, to accept that confirmation and that truth. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, it's gotten to the point where there are so many voices out there I'm not saying that they're not all authentic or not all Mm -hmm. well-intentioned, but I remember from in in speaking from my personal experience, um, I absolutely built the wrong support group around me. Um, It distanced the relationship that I had with my wife at the time, and Mm -hmm. um, I'm not saying my wife at the time. I'm just saying at the time that we were living through through this, uh, she's still my wife, but. Um, you know, we all have our different opinions about how we should do this, whether it's going to be a, a tough love. Um, you know, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to be accusatory and I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to get to the bottom of this right now. I'm going to deal with it. Um, right. And as you know, it doesn't, it doesn't do any good to try to talk to your child when they're high. Um, right. Because it, just, it doesn't go anywhere. You just get more angry and uh, more confused about what's going on in your life. So, but on top of that, I, I mean, I, I actually went to people that I thought that were going to support me in a way that were going to um, kind of hear my story um, because one of the things that I felt really intensely in the beginning was a need for self-pity. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I didn't want to be one of those statistics, one of those numbers. You know, today, the, you know, the estimate is 24.6 million um, you know, people uh, 12 and over that have some type of substance abuse issue in the United States. And I, I really didn't want to be one of those people. And so I thought, well, the people that I could trust are my family and some close friends. Um, and as we talked before, and, I, and, and this is something I have to give you credit for, it helped me learn, was that once I tell my story, I invite them in to my chaos. Mm-hmm. And But they don't grow with me because they're not in parent group meetings and they're not in meetings with uh, a treatment specialist and they're not dealing with my son on a daily basis. You know, so 
they can blindside you by kind of like, well, did you take his truck away from him yet? Or did, did you give him his cell phone back? If you are, you're dumb, you're stupid, you know, you can't be doing right. that. Right. That, when, you, when you're talking about all that noise that's out there, um, there's plenty of it. Uh, but I invited it into my life. And, and then it became a du- kind of a double uh, battle for me. And then I was to fight for my son's um, life in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a general context in terms of keeping him in treatment and keep, keeping him moving forward. But then I had to kind of change people that were on my playground, too. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to tell them where I had to set, and I then had to set new boundaries for people that thought they were helping me that were basically just wanting to kind of grind an axe about mm-hmm. how bad my son was. Mm-hmm. And then I got angry at them, but I'm the one that caused it in the first place. So it, it, it is a very, very confusing time. Um, for some people, it can be a matter of uh, just a few months. And for me, it was more like a matter of, you know, a couple of years. Right. Try to figure out who I could talk to. Right. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I I did hear, I would hear a lot of that, you know, when parents would, usually the, the kind of treatment I worked in, we were usually kind of the last house on the block. A lot of parents had tried, a lot of the families that came to us had tried a lot of different things, and they came to us last. Um, and, and I know that that's a lot of what I would hear from people was their families had said this and somebody at work had told them this and, you know, they had gotten all these different ideas from people and nothing was working, you know, and what it finally came down to was nothing was going to work until we could figure out what was going on with their kid. You know, and and one of the really interesting things, too, was if they were so focused, which, again, I don't want this to sound judgmental. I, I think this is really normal and this is what happens and this is what we hope to really help people with is they would get so like almost obsessive with telling their kids story to anyone who would listen and you know, just talking about it over and over and over again to the point where that's all they thought about was the problem and what they thought the problem was and weren't completely sure. And they were trying all these things, you know, taking away their cars and taking away their cell phones and grounding them and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it didn't seem like anything was helping. And, you know, asking them to take a step back and get, you know, get almost get grounded, you know, and, and stop and think about, okay, you know, where are you? (laughs) When was the last time you did the dishes? When was the last time you went out to dinner? When was the last time you, you know, just went on a drive by yourself and didn't think about any of this stuff. And, you know, people would look at me like I was crazy which is understandable because one of the things, and we talked about this last week, you know, some of the stuff that you hear is, you know, your kid's going to die basically, you know? And so of course the main focus becomes how do I save my kid's life and what do I need to do? And so that's why I'm, I'm saying, I don't think that it's wrong that parents get that, that honed in on 
you know, how do I fix this? How do I help my kid? How do I save my kid? Because they do. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a scary thing, especially if it's a parent who doesn't have a whole lot of experience with drugs or alcohol or someone who has, you know, recovered from them and their life and, and all that they, they know is what they've seen on TV and, and all, and, and heard, you know, in the media, but, but it really is so important to make sure as a parent or, you know, a family member of someone that's going through this, that you are taking the time to take care of yourself and, and get, get focused on what you want and where you are and what's going on with you. And then that way you can move forward, you know, from a, from a, a less frenetic place, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, cause we, you know, we're, we're sitting still basically in life and we have these dreams and expectations of our families. Um, and all of a sudden everything kind of gets flipped upside down. And I, I, I have probably said this in a previous program, but you you're almost, you get pushed from like zero to like 60 miles an hour in like two seconds. Right. And things just start happening so quickly. And one of the things that, that, that I've learned over the 12 years that I've been doing the research and, and uh, talking to parent groups and working with, with families is that, um, you know, it's really difficult to try to process the amount of information that's available. And you mentioned it earlier because of Google um, I mean, if, if you put addiction and you get something like, like you know, 700 million hits, um, right. so you know you have to try to figure out, well, gosh, which one do I, which link am I going to follow here? Right. Um, and it, it's like it's overwhelming. Uh, you know, I really didn't want to become an expert on addiction. What I wanted to find out was what I needed to do to get my life back and our life together back as a family, as you mentioned before. And that was the genesis for the Family Recovery Project, you know, vision and mission statements when we first started talking was how do we restore family? You know, mm-hmm. it, it's not about it, – it, you obviously have to have data and you have to have some statistics um, to give you some perspective of the, of the depth and breadth of the issue that you're dealing with. But when I look at, in my, into my son's eyes or the eyes of other kids that, that were in treatment with him, I saw somebody else's child. Right. Um, you know, I, it was really difficult for me to put a data point on their forehead and go, oh, you're, you're number 1,999,000, whatever, um, because that's not how we feel about our children. Um, mm-hmm. So we're, we're really easy prey when it comes to, um, you know, the, the death statements because we do have, you know, kids that, that do overdose and die. We also have adults that, you know, that do the same. Right. Um, you know, and, and so really we're looking for somebody to be honest with us, you know, just right. kind of tell me what it is that I need to do. Um, right. And I will then try to tell you if I, if I think I can do it or if it makes sense. Um, but because of the competition for $35 billion a year in the industry, you get, you get a lot of competition. Um, the front end sales pitch is pretty much the same, but then after that, the application of theories, and the battle for treatment supremacy is absolutely confusing to parents right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though 90, better than 90% of programs right now are still, you know, based on a 12-step premise um, because it's still accepted by most of the courts in terms of uh, in lieu of prison or in lieu of, 
of uh, jail time if they show mm-hmm. up and they, they have this, this aftercare program once they get arrested or whatever. Um, it's still very much a conundrum in terms of trying to figure out what are they telling me as a parent to help me keep my kid uh, from ending up somewhere where I don't want him to be. Right. Uh, so the conversations that you and I have had and talk about is about being honest and being authentic about what really works for some and also the fact that what works for some doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to work for everyone. Yes. So there's there's a lot of flexibility and, and what, you know, we have to ask parents, we have to ask loved ones to be patient and to do the work. Um, right. You know, one of the, the greatest analogies that I think that you shared with me along, you know, six, eight years ago when you had my son was, you know, you guys have to figure out how to live your life in your own lane for a while. Yeah. Because if you stay in your son's lane, um, you're going to be on a roller coaster with him that when he's okay, you're okay. And then when he's not, you're not. Um, right. That's one of the most, I, I really did feel very, very um, kind of like selfish in wanting to take care of myself first. Um but I didn't understand at that time that if I didn't take care of myself first, you mentioned earlier, I couldn't take care of anybody. Right. You know, so, and I, and I always kind of wondered, I mean, I'd like to ask a question of you. I mean, you know, honesty is, is really what we want. I just wanted my son to just look at me and say, okay, dad, I did this. I'm sorry. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to really do this. <laughs> right. but they don't, it doesn't work that way. And no. I've always thought, I always look at you and look at other people that were in your position and go, you know what's going on, don't you? I think right. you know what's going on, but you're not telling me yet, and I don't know why, but uh, it's maybe just not my time to learn. And I think that's the part about the patience that we have to get used to and then also to take that time to work on ourselves. So any thoughts and reflections on that and how you deal with parents that are obsessive, <laughs> as you put it earlier, <laughs> about wanting to get things changed? Well, you know, I, I thought about something while you were talking and, and another – kind of earth shattering thing that happens in these situations is parents, most parents, I'm not saying all, um, but most parents for the first time start to see that their children are making their own choices and the things that their children may not make the right choices and they may not make the right decisions and as a result may come to harm. And that's, I think that's a really, I think that's a really tough thing for a lot of parents to really come to terms with because I I think there's this illusion in our society that, you know, uh, you're not you're not an adult till you're 18, and that's when you start making your own choices and decisions. But in reality, that happens much much earlier, you know. Um, right. And you know, I have a friend that has a two year old, and that's one of the things that she says to him is she'll say, she'll say, I don't think you're making the right choice, you know, if he's doing something that he shouldn't be doing. And that really struck me because that's such a different, I I think it's great that she looks at it that way because that's such a different way to look at even, even a two-year-old because ultimately that, that two-year-old is making his own decisions, you know, and he is, and, and she's starting to point that out to him, you know, that you're, you're, this isn't just, I'm saying you can't do this. I'm saying 
this is not a good idea, but you have a choice. And I, I think that when these situations occur, when your kids are still living with you, you know, when they're still very much children, you know, 16, 17, 15, whatever, before they're, you know, technically adults and going off to college or, or whatever, I, I think it, it really is such a cold, hard reality of, oh, my child is out there making choices for himself all day, every day. And he's chosen to use drugs, which means he's choosing to do harm to himself. And there's nothing I can do about that. <laughs> ultimately, you know, right. ultimately, I mean, it's, that's what I was thinking about when we were talking about the, you know, that, that message that's out there when parents sometimes first approach, you know, a, a treatment professional or um, especially someone in the 12-step community. That's a very popular thing in the 12-step community is, you know, your options are jails, institutions, or death. And so you hear that, and, and of course, that, that makes them want to jump in and control their child's decisions and, to an extent, take responsibility for them when they're not, you know, they're absolutely not responsible for the choices that their child is making. And at this point, their child is already making choices that could cause them harm. <laughs> and I think right. that's, that's really one of the scariest things that parents go through in these situations because it's the first time they've really had to come face to face with uh, my child's going to make his own decisions about his life. And I may not like them. I may not agree with them and they may cause him harm. And that's a lot to deal with, (laughs) you know, it's just a lot to deal with. But, but I do think, you know, that is one of the things I tried so hard to help parents with when I was working with families was, um, you know, you've got to let, we've got to let them make their own decisions and their own choices. And we will give them, you know, what, what you will go to bed feeling good about tonight is knowing that you gave them every opportunity to make the right choice. But beyond that, there's nothing you can do, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, I think that's a lot of why that, that, you know, your kid could die stuff is so terrifying for parents because, all of a sudden they realize that they're not in control of that anymore with their kids. Right. And one of the things, and kind of getting back, is that, you know, one of the things that that parents are first taught um, is that addiction basically exists um, because of secrets, um, because of cover-ups or deceptions. Right. And getting back a little bit earlier to my statement about when I would look at you, I knew I knew there was something inside of me that, that told me that you knew more about what my son's choices were than I did. Mm-hmm. And it was really difficult for me to deal with the irony of, you know, wanting to do something but not having enough information to work with yet. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things about treatment that is really hard for, you know, most parents. Some parents are really kind of like, I'm just going to let it go and I'm just going to let it be what it is. Um, you know, I, I don't think the majority of parents are like that. Um, you know, right. given my experience and the, the hours and hours of conversations that we have, you know, after parent meetings where, you know, you don't get home until three o'clock in the morning. Um, mm-hmm. but it, it was one of those things where I kind of, I thought, well, if, 
if it can exist in, in, in a secret world that doesn't involve me, then there has to be some secrets that parents have for themselves too. And there are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and it's an interesting process in terms of learning to set those boundaries as an initial point of trajectory and direction when you have that sense of confirmation, when you know that your child is doing things that they shouldn't be doing, mm-hmm. um, is not to negotiate. Um you know, my son was good enough with me in terms of manipulating my emotions that he could actually negotiate where he was going to go to treatment. And right. even though there was something inside of me that was suspicious about that part of it, I still kind of wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt and, and let him choose where he was going to choose his treatment. Mm-hmm. And it was a boundary that took me a, a couple, as I said, a couple of years to be able to set and say, you know, no, no son, that doesn't work anymore. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we've, we've had enough relapses. We've had enough of this. We've had enough of that. Um, and being able to turn it over to treatment professionals in such a manner as being able to say, you know, this is not your choice anymore. Right. Um, now, once, once your, your son or daughter turns 18, they can walk out of a facility. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really important for parents that have kids that are 18 and under to be able to get that concept early on um, because a 16-year-old is just as good at negotiating outcome as an 18 or 19-year-old, depending upon where they're at. Right. Um, you know, so, you, know you, you do have to, even though you you feel that sense of betrayal, you still have to maintain your optimism for for being able to trust in something to get you out of the the weeds. You know, uh, we mm-hmm. talked about before. You're just out there, mm-hmm. um, and part of that is being with other parents, being with other people that have been through it, um, and uh, we all deal with it in different ways. But you'll, you know, if you find somebody that has been able to work something out, you can learn something from them. And then we can learn something from the treatment professionals and what they're willing to share as they're going through the process. Because I understand that, and and I've been involved with parents that have sabotaged their children's uh, recovery. Mm -hmm. Um, Because um, sometimes it's important for some family members and especially some parents to be able to have a badge. I, I, I call it a badge of addiction that they like to walk around with pinned on their shirt and, and it says, you know, my child is an addict. Um, right. But it isn't our story to tell. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you know, and I, and I think that was one of the hardest things that I had to do because I, I would tell, uh, you know, somebody that I was buying a soft drink from at a convenience market the story of my son if they wanted to listen. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I was that needy. And I just thought, well, um, And it was me about thinking, well, I'm going to be honest about everything. Uh Um, But I really, I I wasn't helping anybody. Um, You know, nine times out of ten, they would either match my story or tell me something that was worse worse than my own story. So it's not like we are not all in this together. Um, So I I just, anyway, I find that ironic in that as we go through this together, you really do have to take a team attitude about it. And your addict or your your, your child that's abusing substances needs to be part of that team also. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that they need to, they just need to understand that they're going to have to respect your boundaries. So anyway, yeah. that's kind of my two cents about that. I just wanted to go back and cover that for a sec. Yeah, and I yeah I I totally 
totally agree that that is such a a facet of of all of this and that's you know that's the thing I was thinking about while while we've been talking is there's just there's so many different avenues that you go down <laughs> in this process you know there's just it especially in the beginning there's just no there are no clear answers and I think that that's that's really hard for everyone. I don't think it's like, you know, there's just one personality type that can't handle, you know, feeling out of control or not knowing what's coming or not knowing, you know, what to expect. I think that's every human being. I think that is absolutely human nature that we like to feel like we've got some level of predictability in our lives. And when you are suspicious of or know that, your child is abusing substances that not all of that goes away, you know, that illusion of, of predictability and control. And um, I know what's going on in my house, <laughs> you know, it just goes away. Right. And, right. and, and you're right, you know, and, and I, 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 it was funny when you were talking about, you know, looking at me and knowing that, I knew more and, and, and that's, that's such a precarious position that treatment professionals find themselves in as well, especially with, with minors, because we do know a lot of things and there's a level of, you know, how much do you tell the parents because you don't want to lose the trust of the, the person that you're working with, you know, the kid that you're working with. Um, right. And, you know, and of course, if there are things that are, you know, life-threatening or absolutely necessary to tell parents of course we you know we're obligated to do that and, and well at least I absolutely did but but yeah there is a level of um I did know a whole lot more about what was going on in, in a kid's life and prior to them being in treatment as well than their parents did and and um you know, I, I know one of my goals always working with teenagers was for them to be able to have those those open, honest conversations with their parents, you know, at some point to be able to sit down and say, look, here's what's going on with me, you know, and not just, you know, one of the things we talked about earlier was the the family meeting that we would do, you know, like when I was working with your son, we would do a family meeting at the on their last day of or their last week of, of treatment and they would, you know, kind of come clean about things and, and apologize, make amends for things. And it was, it was meant to be, you know, like a new beginning, you know, the a kind of, you know, setting everybody up for success as we were transitioning the, the kid out of their kind of daily intensive therapy. And, um, but, you know, my, my goal was for that to start actually prior to, you know, that last meeting and for there to start being some open, honest communication in general leading up to, to them not being in treatment every day and then to set them up to with some of, those, um, some of those tools, you know, so that when they weren't coming in and, and under my gaze, <laughs> you know, for, for four to six hours a day that they were they would, you know, kind of, it would be something that they wanted to do. You know, they wanted to have these open, honest conversations with their parents and they wanted to do things they, that they could look at themselves and say, I feel good about doing this, 
you know, some of those just basic things. And when I know the closest I came to really understanding what that felt like was the six years that I was managing the, um, the sober living center where I also worked with your son, (laughs) um, where there were eight to 10 kids living in a house and they were there for 45 days and they lived there. I mean, they, you know, they moved in for 45 days and I was like their, you know, the house mom, you know, I, I, I woke them up every morning and I, um, cleaned the house and I, you know, I took care of, you know, all the administrative stuff, but I was kind of the, and I was kind of the liaison between them and the, their treatment because they were in, you know, intensive outpatient treatment during the day and then would come back to the house in, in the afternoons and evenings. And um, so I, you know, I usually had a pretty good, had my finger on the pulse of what was going on with everybody, you know, and I also supervised the staff that worked with them kind of around the clock. And um, so I, I pretty much knew, but it was so funny because we would, we would have these reu- little reunions once a year where, the kids that had gone, you know, had been in the, that treatment center with me, um, they would come back and we would have like a picnic and, you know, kind of just a big party and they would all come back. And, um, and, and so we would be sitting around picnic tables talking and they would be telling all these stories about the things that they did, you know, while they were living in the house that I had no idea about. I mean, just no clue. And none of us did. And, and it was great because they got to have their own, they had their own memories with each other, you know, and they had their own, it was their, their own experience um, outside of their relationship with me and the rest of the staff, because regardless, we were, you know, we were authority figures, you know, we were, we worked there, you know, um, and, but, but I remember how strange that felt. And I remember thinking, this is how parents must feel when they find out all the stuff their kids were doing, you know, behind their back when, you know, when they were, when they were using drugs. And it is, it is a very disconcerting feeling because you look at these kids and you just, and and they just, they just seem so young and so innocent and you just want to, you know, I, I know at least I would have this feeling of, you know, I need to know what's going on with them in order to protect them. You know, it wasn't coming from a malicious place. It was coming from a place of love and care and, and protection and feeling like if I knew what they were doing, then I could care for them better, you know? And it was the first time that happened, I was like, oh, you know what? I just did the best that I could, but I can't be with them all the time. Right. You know, and that that was really what I tried to really tried to help the parents I worked with, with was, you, you know, you've just got to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and you've got to feel good about what you do with your kid on a daily basis. And then you've got to trust them <laughs> from there, you know, and, and they make it so hard to trust them sometimes, but, you know, at some point, like you said, you do just have to let go, you know, and allow them to have their own experiences and make their own choices. Cause I remember, I mean, one of the, one of the most difficult feelings that I had to, get control over initially was, you know, if you hadn't made the choices that you did and are continuing to do, and if you wouldn't continue to lie about it, we wouldn't be here. Right. Um, and it's really tough because emotionally it's that sense of betrayal, you know, that you feel as a parent 
And on top of that, there's huge financial risk in terms right. of what it takes out of a family because I, I know that at the treatment center that he was, you know, with you over a period of, you know, in and out and redoing it again. And <clears throat> I look at that and I'm thinking, you know, I spent a hundred thousand dollars on, on that process for him there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and one program or another, such as outpatient and, you know, residential and everything else. It just kind of, you know, you keep, you know, paying the bill sort of, but there was always that, you know, when I get ready to, to write another check or, um, you know, pay for another round of treatment, um, it was always like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not here because of me. I'm here because of what you've done. And it was really tough as a parent to let go of that. And in and, and, and parent groups and, and working with, with families, it's one of the common uh, threads that it, it kind of binds us all together is, is that, you know, you know, we didn't cause this, but we're right. the ones that are having to kind of like pick up the pieces. And that's where it's really difficult to, um, you know, process it. And I think that's what I, I, you know, our hope is that the Family Recovery Project will put those ideas and shared experiences out there because a lot of, of the, um, what I would call the You're Not Alone um, videos and stories and stuff that are out there um, are talking about, it, it would be like me going and always talking about what my son was doing, but I refuse to talk about what I'm doing for myself. And I just think that it's just, it's, you know, it's, it's misguided because they're really not learning anything except for the misery that they had in their life. And it makes me want to be comparing myself to what they've lived through. Right. Not that I had a, a need to make my, my story any worse. It's just that, I found myself not learning anything from those stories. Right. Um, you know, and right. I and, and I think the Family Recovery Project wants to be proactive in saying, look, I mean, if that, if this is the way your son or daughter, and in some cases, uh, as you know, I mean, uh, there were siblings in the program, uh, many programs, um, you know, where families and parents have to come to grips with the fact that there's going to be times that are going to be really difficult to get through, but it's always about what they're doing for themselves to get in a better position to deal what choices their kids are making. Right. And unfortunately we do have a a, a small percentage of kids that do end up, uh, you know, on the bad side of the probability scale as it was, you know, where, um, Right. Especially with especially with opiates and opioids, when they're clean for a while, they go back out and then they take, um, um, you know, another hit to get high, and they don't have that tolerance anymore, and we end up losing some of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that reality is real. Um, you know, I'm not discounting that at all, um, but the majority do make it. And the point that I like to make is, is that the majority of time our kids make it, but our families don't. Right. Um, because we're not communicating and we're not talking. So, um, you know, heaven forbid that that my son's sister is still, you know, holding and harboring um, ill will towards her brother for the actions that he took because that ends up being a responsibility for me as a parent. Right. And finding the resources and finding the information that it's going to, you know, reintegrate my family. Yes. Um, Yeah. Now, now that my son has six years clean, it's, easier but there's always that 
that thought there, you know, is there anything that I should be telling my daughter today mm-hmm. about what mm-hmm. she should be thinking about? Mm-hmm. But as they grow, as she, as she grows older, she knows that she can just ask for herself. Right. And that's one of the amazing things that happens within a family if you stay committed to finding the resources that are that are based on integration and not separation. Um, because that's that, you know, the the the, the, the segmenting and, and putting everybody in a little box. Um, that we still have operation, you know, operationally within the context of some treatment theories doesn't work. Yeah. Um, you know, it's yeah. like, you no, know, families go down to the end of the hall, um, addicts go here, semi-addicts go across the hall, siblings go here. <laughs> semi-addicts. Um, right. And you get, right. and you get, you get to, see, and you get to see each other on weekends. How does that sound? Um, you know, it just doesn't work because there's really, there isn't enough going on there because after they're discharged, they come back home. Right. You know, we're, we're, if, we, if we're not lucky enough to have been able to work out some type of a plan on our own or with the help of others, um, our kids walk back into a house filled with either hostility, resentment, and other things that are still holding on there, again, based on that original emotion of suspicion and, and confirmation right. because of that betrayal. Um, and, you know, so it's really important. I mean, I, I, I like, talk, sit my son down and say, look, I mean, you're causing, you know, this family legal um, liability, you know, because of you could be high, you could be driving our car, you're under our insurance, and there's financial. Um, he didn't care. Right. Know, so I was trying to take this really kind of, like, practical, I'm going to talk it out with you now, son, and then you're going to understand. Uh, right. Just, you know, if it were that easy, my gosh, we, we wouldn't even be having this discussion today. Um, but I, I do think that, and I, I, I firmly believe that treatment works for those that accept it. And even if, and I've seen families do well in spite of their child continuing to do poorly. Because right. they've made a decision that they were going to save their family first. Um, because it's up to our our children to make a choice that they're going to go ahead and embrace the concept of uh, either in a harm reduction sense or through uh, abstinence, whatever whatever works best for them in their life to get control over their life again, that the family has to work to stay together. Right. Um, and that's what the Family Recovery Project is all about. And, and, and so much of our material that we're developing right now uh, for you know the people that are looking for help is is centered on that idea. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, we're about two minutes from the end of our show. I think we got we got a lot to a lot of the things that we wanted to. Um, we will be back next week. I don't think we have a specific topic picked yet for next week, do we? No, we we're just beginning to talk about that part of it. Um, but we'll uh, we'll post something and let everybody know. Um, yeah. And, uh, in the meantime, if you would like to contact us, you can find us at www.thefamilyrecoveryproject.com. Um, you can also reach us on our email at frank at thefamilyrecoveryproject.com or Jacqueline, J-A-C-Q-U-E-L-I-N-E at thefamilyrecoveryproject.com. Um, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast and what we're doing and any feedback would be greatly appreciated. Anything else that you can think of, Frank? No, I just, you know, want to 
take a just a, a few seconds to you know wish everybody a, uh, a, a you know hope that everybody had a safe and happy holiday season you know and uh, yeah uh, we we didn't we didn't do a program on how difficult holidays can be we will be talking about that in a, at a future time uh, special occasions um, and and looking at that place setting where there's somebody missing from our tables right. um, but I, I think that you know initially we want to focus on what things are going to be happening that are going to change um, people's trajectory right out of the box. And I think that that this is an issue that's really big. Um, So I'm glad that we spent some time on it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I also like that we're spending some time talking about how what we hope to do is really fill in that gap because there is such a gap between, um, you know, not knowing what to do and then going and asking for help from a treatment professional and, Um, we really hope to, to fill that in. So that's all we have for today. Thanks for listening.